you know, I moved a lot. I don't know if you know this. I moved a lot as a child. I was in my eighth school when I when I entered my freshman year of high school, and and I think being able to reinvent myself every time we moved was a huge factor in the in who I became. I could change my environment. All of a sudden, I could be this different person. Nobody else was driving me back, saying like, "Oh, remember that thing you did in sixth grade? Like that sucked." I can remember specifically moving into middle school. What were some of the ways you wanted to change? Oh, I wanted to be cooler. I wanted to be. <laughs> I wanted to be more popular. I wanted, to, you know, I wanted people to like me. When I was in high school, um, I remember I was running for student council, and I realized that if I just paid enough attention to what other people needed out of a situation, then I could very well get, you know, on their good side or at least like leave a positive impression. And I don't, I don't think I knew that that was possible before. And I realized that and I memorized everybody's name out of the yearbook and it was easy. I mean, from there on out. And um, I think that that was a formative thing of like, wow, if you really understand what the other person needs, then you know, you can give that to them more effectively. You won the election. Yeah. This is Small Answers. I'm Lita. Today we're talking about whether people can change. I've been interested in whether, how, and why people change for a long time. There is something incredibly hopeful and inspiring about believing in our capacity for change. It means improvement is possible, we can learn from missteps, that the things we wish were different about ourselves or others needn't be forever. But the belief that change is possible is also complicating. With the excitement of what might be possible comes the unease of personal responsibility. Believing we have control over our actions, our behaviors, even our feelings puts the onus on us to do something different. Which brings us to Craig, who you just heard speaking. We wanted to talk to Craig because he is in the business of helping people change their behaviors. He's a negotiation coach. His methods combine techniques in corporate negotiation with behavioral research. Remember that behavioral research part because we're going to come back to it later. Anyway, Craig thought he was pretty good at negotiation, or that's what he was told, until he realized that his strategy wasn't a strategy at all. I thought I was naturally pretty good at negotiation, you know, and I could switch on this thing where it's like, you know, it'd be a little bit detached and removed from the situation and I think it's a typical, you know, thing to do as a male as well, to just kind of be more aggressive in that type of situation. And you, you get this feedback that you're doing better because you will get more. But um, it's not really a skill. It's because sometimes you go up against somebody else who is also aggressive and then you lose. Not because they're more aggressive, but you just can't have two people with that sort of um, strategy, if you want to consider it that. Craig explained that being aggressive or hard-nosed is one of two common negotiation tactics. The second tactic, which I'm guessing will feel familiar to a lot of people, but especially women, is to be super, super, super pleasant. The other type is to just be really nice. And also this works better than average, right? If you're really nice to people like you, they'll give you, you know, more. But also, you know, you go up against somebody who doesn't care if you're nice or not, and then you lose. In other words, these negotiation approaches are better than nothing, but don't account for the position and personality of the person you're dealing with. So what should we be doing instead? Craig said that having a deep understanding of the emotional component of a negotiation has a far greater influence on the outcome than power and leverage. In other words, it's about feelings. It's really about understanding the person and you know what is important to them. Being able to pull out the kind of skills and tools 
according to the situation as opposed to just saying like, I'm this type of person and I apply who I am to the situation. And then it's looking at like, who's the person who's on the other side of the table? What do they want to talk about? What areas do you think are comfortable for them? Like how can you make them feel better about hiring you? What do they like about you? And a lot of people will come at it and be like, well, I deserve this because I want this and I need this. And it's like the other person doesn't really care about your personal situation. They're human. They care about their job and what's in it for them. And you have to be able to phrase things in terms of them. And, you know, these very simple changes in terms of how you phrase things can make huge differences in just letting the person open up and tell you more about what they can give you. There are obvious reasons to want to be good at negotiating. For most of us, it's about wanting to make more money, potentially lots more. But Craig's view of the value of negotiation is much broader and deeper. You know, the reason, one of the reasons I got into the, you know, like this idea of negotiating salaries is like I was so pissed when I found out that other people negotiated out of college and I did not. And like there was a market level of difference in terms of what they got. Not just in money too. Like when you get paid more, people assume things about you and give you more opportunities. Oftentimes, you know, you get paid because people perceive your value to be high, which is not just that they pay you, they also give you a lot of responsibility, give you more projects, give you different things. People usually come to this idea of, you know, helping with, you know, I think about it as social skills in a, or soft skills in a large sense, and negotiation is a very um, money-focused way of thinking about that, but a lot of it is just good communication. And a lot of the people that I initially interact with would think about it as um, becoming a little bit tougher or like honing these kind of tactics and strategies. It actually ends up being much more of a soft thing where you're really looking at where the other person's emotional state is. And I learned it and I truly believe that people make decisions emotionally and then rationalize them afterwards. And so if you take that into account when it comes to negotiating, um, it really is more about communication and uh, empathy in some ways than being really hard-nosed. At this point, you might be wondering why an episode about change is spending so much time discussing negotiation. It turns out the two are linked. Negotiation is about convincing or persuading someone to change their mind or how they act. Behavioral research shows us that people make most of their decisions for emotional reasons and rationalize them later. That's why negotiation requires understanding them and their motivations deeply. The same thing applies if you want to change your own behavior. Like negotiation, you need to understand your base motivations and behaviors and where they come from. What types of things influence your behavior that you don't realize? And how can you use those things to intentionally do them differently? I used to like, you know, write down goals every year and then it became write down goals every every quarter and then it was like, well, I'm going to review them once a week or I'm going to have this on my phone and I'm going to look at it every day or I'm going to like type something and write. And what I realized is that no matter what I did in terms of time increments, eventually your motivation wanes. Like you just can't keep up, especially very many things that are purely based on your, you know, daily motivation and the science completely um, backs us up, that we have a certain amount of personal effort, willpower, whatever you want to call it, and it's very measurable. And it is something that you kind of use out, like a battery. Now I think about things in terms of setting up a system that makes me get to that goal. Systems are Craig's secret weapon for helping him make lasting change. So, for example, he said that he keeps his guitar out next to his couch so that he'll pick it up and play more often. Or he'll put the remote control on the other side of the room so that he has to get up, walk over, 
and pick it up if he wants to watch TV. He applies systems to change his behavior in his professional life, too. I work from home, and I have a woman that, that um, I hired to call me every Monday, and we talk about what I'm doing for that week. And, you know, it sounds really silly when because all she does is like, okay, you're going to do this? Great. And I have her tracking the stuff online, and she doesn't do anything other than listen to what I'm going to say, and if I forget something from last week, she brings it up. And the difference in the weeks where I don't call her is palpable. I mean, it's just so tangible. I can see that, like, I kind of go off in these different areas because in the back of my head, I don't have this thing of like, oh, I got to talk. I have to talk to Holly next week. What am I going to say if I don't do anything on this? I've hired a boss in a way who has no power at all, and yet it still works. Now, when I set up any sort of kind of objective for myself, but um, which is mostly professional at this point, but but even in personal, like I try to set up some sort of system around that, and I believe very strongly that that is a lasting way to enact change. That you know you can't have just by like relying on yourself to try harder, try harder. It seems like you feel a great sense of responsibility, but kind of in a good way for all of the changes that you make. It doesn't seem like it weighs on you, whereas I think for some people, the idea that they can control so much, it's off-putting. I mm. mean, for some people, that's like, that in itself is the disincentive to believing in change because so, there's so much accountability that comes Hmm. from starting in that place. Do that's you find that that's true for you? So I think the realization that motivation is just not something to rely on was hugely beneficial in relieving myself of that pressure. The idea that, you know, I'm going to try to set myself up on a meta level, environmental level, whatever it is, system level, to kind of get what I want is very empowering. I think the idea that you can change that stuff and do it in a lasting way, I think, is very empowering. What is, you know, can be a little bit of, of a bear is if you, you feel like, if I could just fight harder, if I could just try harder, and I used to do that. Now I'm like, I don't feel like it's a personal dig against myself. Like, I just didn't get to, it's like, you know, I need to set this up a little bit better, but I know that this is part of being human. Like, I, I'm not going to will myself out of it, and I don't, I don't try to. Craig is pretty persuasive on the topic of altering your environment as a tool to create lasting change. But there's another component that is much harder to control, and that's being motivated to take action in the first place. So many of us talk about change without ever acting on it. How do you go from wanting to make a change to actually doing something about it? Craig says the shift comes from recognizing that success is possible. He calls it a line of hope. It's not so much that you have to kind of like all of a sudden turn the switch, it's just that being able to to believe that that this is possible. You have to see, and I see this out for myself, like when I see, you know, the first time in a company that we sell something, right, or, you know, I was doing physical rehab for my leg for a while, and the first time I ran without pain, it was kind of like, oh, I see that I'm going to be successful here. And I think just having that kind of line of hope uh, and seeing that, you know, is what I think is very, very powerful in terms of getting people to continue to take action. You know, change is like a, it's a hard thing to kind of quantify, but I think of it, you know, and definitely the behavioral side that, that I've learned is to look at people's behaviors as opposed to results. And in terms of what gets people to change a behavior and to continue to change that behavior is the important part to look at. Could you talk a little bit more about some of the behaviors of your own that you've tried to change? I naturally um, will fill in space verbally in a conversation. On a positive side, I don't have a hard time holding my own in the conversation. But 
with different people in different situations, you want to allow more space. Like I often say, you know, to people, say this or get to this point in the conversation and then just shut up. Like just be quiet, right? And just wait because something will come and whatever comes, yes, no, maybe whatever it is, will be valuable information to you. In a professional context, I have no problem doing that. In a personal context, I think that, you know, I'm not necessarily in the mode where I'm, I'm being strategic. I don't want to be in that mode, but I would like to naturally, you know, eventually kind of move over to where um, those skills transfer, you know, more easily than they do naturally. Yeah. How successful do you feel you've been? Uh, in certain relationships, vary, and those relationships are not one-to-one -one with them being the most important. I've believed that people can change for a while because it's something I've seen in my own life and relationships. What I heard from Craig only reinforced this perspective. But now he also has me thinking about what lasting change requires and consists of. He has me thinking about the ways I've already changed, and maybe more importantly, the ways I still want to. I was thinking about this idea of change and whether it's possible um, after you, you guys emailed me, and I, and I thought, well, you know, people say, oh, you know, people don't change, and then it just doesn't make any sense to me because if you were to say that people don't change, at, at what point do they stop changing? Is it when they're 10 or when they're 15 or when they're 35? But to say that you can't change, I just, it doesn't ring true to me in any sense. Like, whether I want to believe it's true, I just don't believe it's true, and I, I, I would have a hard time being convinced of it. For more information about Craig, visit his website, craigdossantos.com. You can subscribe to our podcasts through the iTunes Store or on SoundCloud. For a new post every Monday, sign up at smallanswers.us.